So it is so good to be together this morning, and as we turn to uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, a message we're titling, Lost and Found, I want you to think of the first thing of significance that you lost in your life. The first thing that you lost, you remember it? I had to go back quite a ways. I have a knack for losing things, and it started early for me. Um, I inherited this trait from my mother who regularly lost the car in the parking lot, so the stores we would go shopping, and I couldn't figure that out, and now I get it completely. I get it. (laughs) I I was going Christmas shopping just three blocks up from my house in Evanston to Central Street, a little downtown community, and I had my, what was it, $15 and change to go get presents for my three sisters and my parents. And somewhere between my house and Central Street, I don't know what happened. I lost my envelope of money. And that trait has just been, it's just been part of me. I'm always losing something. Lori, since the very beginning, has gotten really used to the, hey, hon, have you seen? And it's usually my wallet, my keys, or some other important thing. So on our honeymoon, we're coming back from our honeymoon on the north shore of Lake Superior up in Minnesota. We're driving back down, coming home with very little money in our wallets because we didn't have a lot and we just spent it on the honeymoon, right? So we're getting gas in Duluth and uh, I'm, I'm filling up the tank. Lori's in the driver's side and it's a, it's a beautiful fall day and she's got, I got the window down and I'm cleaning the windows, pumping the gas, checking the oil and just assuring her that when it comes to the car, the maintenance, keeping it clean, and all the things about the car. I got it. I got the car. I'm just trying to, you know, just show her that I'm going to step up to the plate. I'm going to do this, Lord. She's going, that's great. That's great. Good. Whatever. All right. So fill up the car. We drive. All the money we got is enough for McDonald's, right? So we're going three blocks down the road. We're going to get some Mickey D's. And we pull into McDonald's, and I go, oh, honey, I don't know where my wallet is. My wallet. She goes, well, you just had it. He just had it. So let's just go back and we'll find it. So we go back to the gas station. I go to the attendant. Did, did I just leave my wallet here at the counter? No, there's no wallet at the counter. I'm going, oh, my word. What would I do? What would I do? So I'm literally, I'm, I'm searching the grounds. I'm going into garbage containers looking to see if somebody cleaned it out and like there was anything to clean out and threw it in the garbage. Nothing. I can't find it. Then I remembered, wait a minute. I've got an Amico credit card, the only credit card I own, an Amico. And we're not an Amico. I'm thinking maybe someone found it and thought, I got gas at the Amico, and they, you know, maybe I lost it some, I don't know. So we go chasing for an Amico. We go to the Amico, there's no wallet. So um, at this point in my life, I was learning this craft of retracing, master misplacer, master retracer. So I'm I'm going back to the scene where I last had it, right? So... I'm, I'm searching around. I'm doing everything. Did anybody turn it in? No, no one's turning it in. I'm going to the garbage cans. I'm looking around. I look like a guy who's looking for something that's lost. And a guy pulls up in his car, and he says, have you lost something? I said, yeah. I said, I lost my wallet. He says, I've got it. I said, you do? What happened? He said, well, you were pulling out of the gas station, making a left turn. The wall was on top of the roof of your car. <laughs> so when I'm telling, when I'm telling Lord, hey, huh, I just want you to know I got the car. I may not have my wallet. (laughs) I got the car thing. He said, yeah, it flew right off the roof of your car. It landed on the double yellow lines. And right as I stopped to pick it up, a car full of high school boys pulled up and said, man, how much money's in the wallet? They wanted that money. There wasn't anything for them either. Anyways, this guy was a Lutheran pastor. Was that cool? From Duluth, Minnesota. Now, 
when, when you find something you've lost, that's a happy day, isn't it? It is a happy day. Just the other day, we were looking for the Subaru key. So Peter went back to college, and he took a key, and he said, Dad, I'm sorry, but I, I accidentally took the Subaru key. I said, no, no big deal. Just mail it back. So a couple weeks later, we get a mail from Peter, an envelope from Peter in the mail, and it's all shredded, torn up. I go, what is this? And there's a little apologetic note from the U.S. Postal Office. Sorry about this. These things happen. And I go, hey, Pete, we got a letter from you. It's all shredded. What was in it? Dad, that was a Subaru key. Dude, you don't, you don't put a key like in a regular envelope. That's not going to work. <laughs> so um, no worries. We got another one. We got one last key. So I say to uh, son number two, Luke, hey, I'm going to go in. It's my day off. I'm going to go in. I'm going to get a Subaru key today. So give me the key. Dad, I, I don't know where the key is. I told you I have inherited this trade, and I'm passing it on to some of my... So I said, don't worry about it. I've got the VIN number. I'm just going to go to the dealer. And it's like a big deal now to get a key. You need the VIN number and proof that you own. Anyway, so I've got all that. I'm feeling good about it. I'm prepared. I go to the parts department, service department. I says, great, we'll get you a key. It's kind of an expensive key. It's got that fancy chip, and it's going to cost you 75 bucks. I said, I need two of those at the rate we lose keys in our house. So no problem. He says, pull the car around. I said, well, that's a problem. I said, maybe you didn't hear what I just said. My one son lost it in the mail from Boston. My other son, he has no clue where it is. I don't have the car here. He says, well, I can make you a key, program it. It's not going to work in your car until I program your car. Now, I'm a little slow, but I'm picking it up quick. Are you saying that I need to tow the car to the dealership for me to get a key for this car? That's exactly what I'm saying. So I go, okay. I got I to gotta teach my son the art of retracing. So Luke comes home from school. I say, son, let's go over it again. What pair of pants were you wearing the last time you knew you had those keys? Show me those pair of pants. He, he pulls them. I said, you check the pockets. Yeah, a lot of times I've, dad, I've done this. I said, okay, we've identified the pants. And I'm just looking, all right, there's a drawer full of clothes. I'm thinking maybe. So I start tearing. There it is. It's on the bottom of the drawer, the key. And there's rejoicing in a My Fair home. Now, this whole thing of rejoicing over lost things found is this dominant theme that we run into in Luke chapter 15. So grab your Bible, Luke 15, and uh, open it up, and we're going to see this beautiful three-story repetition of joy when something that has been lost of importance is found. And the reason Jesus is telling the story these three stories that are all part of one answer is because there's some grumbling religious leaders that have a problem with who Jesus is hanging out with. And their implicit question is, Jesus, why do you welcome and eat with sinners? They don't make it a, state, a question, but it is the question that Jesus is addressing in a unique way in chapter 15. So verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you, 
that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, there's the question. It's the same question that Jesus has to answer back in chapter 5, verse 29, when he's at Matthew's party and the people are saying to his disciples, why do, does your master hang out with sinners and tax collectors? Why does he do that? And so in the first two stories, he's answering the question that's implicit in their mumbling and grumbling. Here's why I hang out with these guys. And by the way, the sinners and the tax collectors, the, these, were the, these were the dredges of society. The, these weren't the people that upstanding citizens like these religious leaders would associate with. These were people that religiously you would consider them unclean. You shouldn't hang. Or those, those, those are the people who contaminate you, pollute you. Stay away from those people. And Jesus says, here's why. I welcome and eat and hang out with sinners and tax collectors because my father finds great joy, greater joy in one of these lost people coming back home to the father than anything else. And that's my joy and that's my mission. He talks about that in chapter 19. He says this in verse 10, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That's my mission. So this is a, a chapter that breaks down in three stories. The shepherd with the lost sheep, the woman with the lost coin, and now the father with the lost son, or is it two? The first two stories answering the question, Jesus, why do you hang out with these people? Well, that's why I'm here. I'm here. It's my joyous mission for the joy of the father. Now he goes on in the third story, which breaks out part A, part B. First part of it, the younger brother. Second part of it, the older brother. The younger brother story has everything to do with the audience that rep is represented by the tax collectors and sinners. He wants them to know about what it means to be lost, how one gets lost, more importantly, how one finds their way home, and what is it about the father's heart towards lost people. He wants them to know that. And then part two, when he starts continuing the story, continues the story with the older brother, he's focusing in on the religious leaders, the 99 who don't think they need to repent. They think they're in a good spot with God. They don't need that. So this is how it breaks out as we move into the story that is often called the prodigal son, but we'll find that that may not be the best title. So we pick it up in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So the older son would have gotten two-thirds, the younger son one-third. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for the distant country, and there squandered, it's the word scattered, his wealth in wild living. 
After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. Jewish people don't feed pigs. Pigs were unclean animals. You stay away from those animals. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, that's a key phrase, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So we're, some of us, we've heard this story a lot. It's like one of the most famous of all of Jesus' stories. It's this unbelievable story. We're so familiar with it that we don't hear it in the same way that they heard it. So when they hear about the youngest son asking for his portion of the estate, we're, we're, we're thinking like, well, he just wants some cash, like probably a lot of cash. But we're not getting that this, this estate wouldn't be divided up until dad died. We didn't understand that most of his estate would have been, and his equity would have been wrapped into real estate, to land, and he was going to have to divest himself. So the, the son's request was just like, oh, my word. What a cocky kid. What, what a rebel. And so if, if they, you think they were offended by the response of the younger brother, hey, dad, give me, give me my share. Oh, then it got even more crazy for the first century audience when they heard the father actually did it. And he let him go. I mean, conventional wisdom. This is, now a, <clears throat> this is written a, a hundred years before Jesus. But it sums up the conventional wisdom of Jesus' day. Here's the quote from the Sirach. To son or wife, to brother or friend, do not give power over yourself as long as you live. And do not give your property to another in case you change your mind and must ask for it. But the father gives it to him. To the amazement of Jesus' audience, the father gives it to him. And off the sun goes to that far country chasing the greener grass, chasing his dreams, searching for happiness. Does he find it? Absolutely. But he found that he doesn't, it doesn't last, right? It's like the proverb, Proverb 19.4. Wealth brings many new friends. Oh, he had a lot of those. And then the, the proverb ends, though, with this. But a poor man is deserted by his friends. So he, he's having a blast, right? He's uh, in that far distant country. He's, he's you know, he's, He's blown out of the farm stand, and he is living his life. Maybe it's in the city, and things are going as planned until he runs out of the moolah, right? No money, no partying. No partying, no friends. No friends, nobody help when hard time comes, and hard time came. It's called the famine, and he has no one to turn to, and he has nothing to turn to except for the one ads. Here's one. Some guy's looking, some farmer's looking for a, a farmhand who will slop the pigs. I guess I could do that. I got nothing else. I mean, that's how far he's gone. I've got nothing. There's no better option. And so he hits bottom, feeding the pigs. 
But it wasn't just bottom because he realized, wow, these pigs, they've got more food than I do. But when he really hit bottom, when he, go, when he went, wow, that's some really good-looking slop. I wish I could have some of that. That was bottom. That's when he came to his senses. And it's not in the text, but I imagine, just because God can do this kind of a thing, totally, that he's kind of, he's, he's in a weakened state, right? He's hungry. He's depressed because his dreams, they're history, right? And, and he's kind of daydreaming, slopping the pigs. He's done it before. And then all of a sudden, as he's thinking about, man, I'm really hungry and I'd like some of that, that God just had one of those big old hogs look up to him with all the slobber. Just, it, and it just hit him like, what's, what's going Oh, I shouldn't do that. What's going <laughs> What's, see, I forgot I had the sound effect. Last night I walked out home with this thing. Anyways, that's when it hit him. That's when he came to his senses. That, that, that's the, that's, what is the joy in heaven? More joy over one sinner. What's the word? Who? Verse 7 to verse 10. Look at it. What's the word in verse 7 verse 10? Over one sinner who what? Repents. Repent is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. I mean, he, he's looking at the pigs, he's longing for the food, and it hits him. He comes to his senses. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of action, and he's heading home, a broken man, a humble man, with a simple request. Could I just come back, and could I take care of the animals? I won't call you dad. You don't have to treat me as a son. I just want to be your hired servant. Wow. Wow. And so it's good for us to remember the marks of the younger brother, driven by personal happiness and not interested in finding it in his father's presence. The father is a huge picture of God here in this story. He'll do anything to get that happiness, which leads to self-centeredness that hurts the closest relationships, broken relationship with father, broken relationship with, with brother, broken relationship with the community. It's going, what's, what's going on here? What, aren't we good enough for you? Brokenness all around him, restlessness. He's convinced the greener grass is not on the farm. He's got to head to the, to the distant country, to the city. He's got a demanding self-centered pride. Give me my share of the estate, he cries, right? He's blind to all that he has, and he's focused on what he wants, and he will not, he will not be thwarted. He's wildly living, out of control, squandering all that he has. There's no sense of the future. Everything is today. Everything is now. It's a party now. It's freedom now. There's this complete disdain for authority, for dad's role in his life. He just wants to be captain of his own soul. He wants to be in control of his own life, all of it. And the result is... There's instability when the storm comes. There's nothing for him to hold on to. No one, nothing. That's the stuff of the younger brother. And he's filled with regrets from running his life to ruining it. But it's just like God to use the hard things in life to be the best things in our life. Maybe that's where you're at right now. It's just like God to use the hard things in life to be the best things. And so it's in that very low point of his life that he starts turning his heart towards home. Verse 20, 
So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Did you hear that? Against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. This isn't the stuff of a servant. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Here it is again, another party going on. And this too was shocking. We hear it and we go, what? What was shocking? The, the, the idea of this man running. So the, the, he wasn't wearing slacks back. They didn't wear pants or shorts. They, they wore a robe. And to run with the robe, you had to gird up your loins is the language of the Bible. You had to pick it up and put it in your belt here, expose your legs. That was indecent. That was improper. That was not the stuff of honor. And he's running to this one that he's apparently looking for, right? Because it says he's scanning as he's looking over the horizon. It seems like he's looking for him. A lot of people say, man, you know what? You are dead to me. You've so dishonored my name, our family, this community. You are dead to me. No, no. He's longing that he would come home. And he runs when he sees him with arms open wide. And so the son begins to give those lines that he'd rehearsed many a time, but he's cut off. And the father starts talking about get a robe, get a ring, get sandals. My son has come home. He, has, he wants nothing of this coming back as a servant. He's welcoming back as a son. What a powerful picture that Jesus so wanted his friends that were drawn to him to know. There's a great advantage of being a younger brother. You're much more aware of your lostness. And that's one of the things that Jesus loved about that group. They knew who they were. They knew who they weren't. And they were growing in an awareness that maybe Jesus had something that they desperately needed. And so he, he just lets these sinners and tax collectors who are looked down on by all the, the upstanding citizens know that this is good news for you. You don't think you deserve the Father's love? Well, you just need to know more about the Father. He's got a heart of compassion. He doesn't just extend mercy. He doesn't just say, yeah, I forgive you, son. And you know what? That's a good idea. Let's try it for six months. See how it goes. But, dude, if you break my heart again, it's over. No, he says, no, there's no trial here. There's no being a servant for a while. You're my son. And you come back as my son. This is powerful. This is huge insight. How do we find our way home? Through the extravagant grace of God, the Father. This word prodigal, check out the definition. You see it on the screen. Recklessly extravagant. A synonym, lavish. And we call this parable the parable of the prodigal son because he was recklessly extravagant to the point that he lost it all. 
But reckless extravagance, when it's God's grace, when it's it's the supply that never runs out, man, what we have here is exactly what Tim Keller calls his book, a great book on this very story, The Prodigal God. And it's this extravagant mercy and grace of the Father that allows the Son to come home. To be sure, he has a change of mind. That was his responsibility. But he could have that change of mind, and the Father doesn't have a heart of compassion, doesn't have extravagant mercy and grace, and there is no reconciliation. So the way home, my way home, your way home to the Father is by accepting that extravagant grace that flows from his heart of compassion because we're his sons. We're his children, whether you call him father. He knows who we are. We're his children. But there's more. Remember the third story, two parts. That's part A. That was a good word for the younger brothers, for the sinners and tax collectors. Now there's part B, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother's come home, he replied. Your father's killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So all of a sudden, Jesus is going, wow, you think you could have just finished it with part A. We get it. We get why you've come, Jesus. We get it. For the joy of the Father to help people, lost people, find their way home. Now, Jesus goes to part two because there's a group that he's talking to that don't understand fundamentally that they too are lost. See, there were two lost sons. The one who did bad things and left home and broke all the rules. The one who never left home and was chasing down good things. One was overt, one was covert. But their hearts were one and the same. And and he wanted to talk to the the religious types, the people that show up to church. Hello, this is us. Younger brothers aren't here this morning. You may send them a copy of the message. You may have gotten dragged here because you didn't have a choice. So it's good there's younger brothers in the house. Look, you're either a younger brother, you're an older brother, or you're a former. And if we find ourselves regularly going to church, it is most likely that we relate to the thinking of the older brother. So let's, let's listen close. This isn't just for people who were religious types 2,000 years ago. It's for people in church today. So from the outside, man, the older brother looks squeaky clean. He's got a case, doesn't he? He claims to have always obeyed his father. 
But listen to his words and you realize there's one thing going on on the surface and there's quite another thing going on below the surface in his heart. It sounds crazy, but he's lost doing life in the very presence of his father. He's lost. Far from home, far from his father. And the reason he's lost has everything to do with his perceived goodness. And when you hear his words, it's not the words of a son. What is he saying? I've been slaving. I've obeyed all the, what's the word? Orders. Slaving? Do we slave? We we might use that. But it's just interesting language. It's given, given us a whole, there's not a relationship here with the Father. He's in his presence. He's in his home. But it's, it's, it's not a tender, it's not an intimate relationship. He's his master. He's his general. He's the slave. He's the soldier. He is not the son. He's not. And his, his framework goes like this. I'm going to do all the work, and it's hard work, so that you owe me, Dad. So that you owe me. He's playing God of his own life. It just manifests in a completely different way as the younger son. The younger son's playing God of his life by saying, I'm out of here, and I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life. The older brother is saying, I'm going to play God of my life by, by playing the game and being compliant and doing the work, but it's all on the surface. It's not at a heart level, but here's the deal. If I do the work, if I do all of it, then you owe me, and you owe me, Dad. And you owe me, God. So one way you break all the rules, one way you keep the rules. But the driver behind both is a self-centered heart that ultimately uses the Father for selfish gain. And what we note, though, is the Father's heart for both. This is good news for older brothers. That the Father hears and he leaves the party, and he pleads. He doesn't chide him in the same way he didn't chide his young. He's merciful. He's pleading with him to come in. The one who's scouring the landscape and embracing his younger son is doing the same with the older son. Great news for older brothers. For me, when I find myself wanting Jesus to stick it to the hypocrites, forgetting, hello, That spirit's well and alive in me, in us. And so the story ends with the older brother still outside the party, right? Still outside the party. Jesus didn't finish it. We don't know what happens. He leaves it there. But here's what we know, that the father didn't put him in a full Nelson and drag him in. He didn't get his servants to drag him in. What we know is the father was pleading, come on in, come on in, come home. Join the celebration. You know, there's a missing part in the stories. If you go, a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. The shepherd, what does he do? He goes, right? And he finds it. What does the woman do? She lights the candle, the the oil lamp. She sweeps the house. She, She goes to look for it. But the father stays at home. Or does he? Now, I I think the story of the gospel is 
that the Father sent his son to the distant country where we live to look for younger brothers. That, that's the story of the gospel. And, and if you've ever lost a child, you know about the intensity of that search. I was lost uh, by my family when I was six at Mount Rushmore, and it was horrific. Um, but I found a man who knew I was lost, and he asked me, are you lost? And I said, yes, through my tears, and he said, I am too. Just sit down here on this bench, and it'll be okay. And that was all good, and it's pretty short trauma. My sisters found me. Okay, that's, I, I know that story, but that doesn't compare at all to what happened at the Minnesota State Fair when Lori and I were hanging out with our family. So Lori's from Minnesota, and the State Fair is a big deal up there. Um, it's arguably, I know R.D. and Emily would argue it's not as good as the Texas State Fair, but it's arguably one of the better state fairs in the country, so we're doing the State Fair. And so you're eating all kinds of really unhealthy food. I mean, they fry sticks of butter, and people, I don't get it. <laughs> no wonder there's paramedics all over the place. <clears throat> so, you know, you're, you got your kids in tow. There's, there's like a million, literally, there's like a million people there. And you get tired walking at the fair, right? So you got to get your feet up. And so we see the Hippodrome. It's this big coliseum, and they've got a horse show going on there. I say, hey, let's just go in there for a while and just, just chill. So we're in there. This is not an exaggeration. We're in there for 10 minutes. We're just looking. We're kind of all spacing out. And I do this look down the aisle. Lori's on the end, and I notice, uh-oh. There's only four kids between us. And I knew right away we were missing our youngest, Luke. And I say to Lori, where's Luke? She goes, where's Luke? And I mean, it's just sheer panic just because there's a lot of people there. It's been a long time, 10 minutes. So we get up. And, I'm, and there's this big hallway all the way around this hippodrome. And there's vendors selling in there. It's just packed with people. I said, I'm going to go this way. You go that way. So I'm a man possessed. My heart is racing long before I started running. And I am praying and fear is gripping me. And I've heard the stories of child abductions. And it's just freaking me out. And I'm running by bathrooms praying, God, am I supposed to go in there? Am I supposed to go in there and I'm just running? I will not be denied. I will do anything and everything to find my son. I'm not kidding you. Anything. There was all focus on that one thing. Make it all the way, almost to all the way to starting point. And a couple of the girls run up to me. Dad, we found him. We found him. Oh, my word. Oh, my word. He just lost track of the, the family line. And by the time he turned around for us, we were gone. And a, a sweet little vendor lady, she grabbed a hold of him and called security. And he was okay. He was okay. And, and that phrase, I would do anything to find my son, that's a father. Anything meant sending his own son to find you and me. And so, I, I don't know where you are today. But the Bible says we were made to live at home with our Father. That's what the Bible says. And you're not home until you're there. And the way you get there 
is through his grace and through his son who said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one gets back to the Father but through me. So who are you today? The younger brother? You the older brother? Are you clear about the older brother? Man, if anger is all about your life, that's older brother stuff. Resentment, that's older brother stuff. Self-righteous, judgmental pride, that's older brother stuff. An unwilling heart when it comes to forgiving someone who's wronged you, that's older brother stuff. Ungratefulness, a lack of joy, that's older brother stuff. When celebrations become occasions for bitterness and resentment, that's older brother stuff. When life and serving God is all about slaving and orders, that's older brother stuff. When the focus is on the rules and on the surface, that's older brother stuff. When God is my slave master, that's older brother stuff. And God says to older and younger, come home, come home. My arms are open wide, come home. Let's pray. We praise you, Father God, that you are the Father who was moved with compassion. Out of your great mercy and grace, at the cost of your Son, who was lost and abandoned on a cross, that we might be found. Lord, we pray that the kindness, your kindness, would lead us to a coming to our senses and a turning around to you, that we would receive this gift of forgiveness and grace as we own up to who we are. I praise you for the people in my life who were those joyous Christ followers that turned my heart home in junior high. I praise you for this church, and I pray that we would be marked with the spirit, not of older brothers, but former, former younger and older brothers. We know who we are. We know that we need your mercy and forgiveness every day, that this would be a joyous, honest, authentic place that doesn't on the surface pretend that we have it all together, but we keep pointing people to your son, who had it all together, has it all together, lived the perfect life, that we might find our way home. May that be our joy. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen.